there's this real bad conundrum in government that CIOs have to grapple with on how they take new technologies or new business process opportunities into an existing program and simplify it. And you're not going to do this fail fast thing that we talked about, right? Because there's no failing small and fast with all these things bolted around legacy monolith. Welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast. I'm Eden Porter de Leon. With nearly 24 million people, a little over 15% of the workforce involved in military, public, and national service at the local, state, and federal level, the public sector in the U.S. faces some unique challenges from a modernization standpoint. Constrained by regulations, but tasked with some of the most critical services, there are no shortage of obstacles to implementing the necessary changes to keep pace with emerging threats, as well as the demands of the citizens that these entities have sworn to serve. In this episode, we'll hear from Matt Livingston, VP Digital Platforms, and Mark Foreman, VP Digital Government Strategy at SAIC, which stands for Science Application International Corporation, an American company that provides government services and information technology support. In this conversation, Matt and Mark talk about the most critical problems that need solving and where scarce resources should be applied. With the distributed workforce that is charged with handling the most sensitive data that exists in the country, what tools and protocols need to be put in place to ensure that they are enabled and can operate securely? How can the threats be balanced with the access that is needed? And what steps can be taken now to begin to modernize IT operations in order to ensure future continuity and resiliency? Matt, Mark, welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast. It's great to have you both on. How are you doing? Good. Thanks right. for having me. Excellent. Hey, I want to just start out with Mark, actually. Mark, before we get down into the meat of anything, I saw in your background, you were the first federal CIO. What does that mean? Tell me what that means to be a federal CIO. I know we're already kind of going off on left field here, but I, I think that's a really interesting piece of your background that I wanted you to share with the listeners. I appreciate that. Well, being the first, you get to set up all the governance practices. And the other thing about being the first when I was there, which was in Bush 43, George W. Bush, we had originally was called GISRA, the Government Information Security Reform Act, and then FISMA, Federal Information Security Management Act. So you get to testify. I was the first guy that had to explain why weren't federal systems secure and what do we do about that, as well as what do we do about all these failing projects? How do we get a handle on whether we're spending too much or too little for IT? So putting in place the processes, the architecture, the governance methods, to really secure the federal systems and the infrastructure, focus on IT more as an investment rather than as a technology initiative, and start to shift use of technology to improve the business of government. That's what it, that job is all about. Was it shocking to everyone that you had to tell them that these things weren't secure? Did their heads spin? What was that like in the room when you're trying to tell everyone, okay, we actually have to spend money here because these things, these aren't secure yet? Yeah, well, that was the, the hard thing is we have to really spend the money to secure this stuff. It's not like these systems have switches that you flip on secure, not secure. You're like, you're just, it's a line of code. It's secure equals yes. Yeah, That's right. it. And then you just put that in there. And many of these systems were built in the 80s, 90s, before people really worried about the security of the internet. And they weren't built to work on the internet. They were built to basically work in an agency but in the whole e-government movement, which I was part of, making those systems, the data, the business processes accessible online really shifted that infrastructure environment. And to this day, it continues to be a shift. I think that's interesting because there has been that progression, 
And I don't know if, if it's felt linear. And Matt, maybe you can give your perspective too, since Mark kind of gave us an idea of sort of how that progression was for him. Matt, what do you think that progression has been from like that 90s security to what has it been today where there's been a massive acceleration or at least the need to accelerate the security component of a lot of legacy systems and now the distributed systems and now distributed workforces that are in environments that aren't necessarily under your control the way they were before. What's that progression been from your standpoint? Yes, yeah, so from my standpoint, if we're going all the way back to the 1990s, right, even outside of government, none of these systems were designed with internet working in mind. You know, security was often not really baked in. This is all cyclical, right? So we see this stuff, what's old is new and what's new is old. And we started seeing with the rise of client-server computing, then you've got networks became ubiquitous. All this stuff's being networked. Uh, you have to start worrying about the security on systems that have no security, no authentication, no integrity, checks, anything based into them. And then now I think you're starting to see this become cyclical again with the rise of like edge and IoT and, and smart things. These are pushing these all into the forefront. So it's certainly not unique to the government, though I think the cost of failure is that much higher for the government because we are talking about citizen services and, and national security. So everybody has the same challenges. I think the government has much more dire consequences for security failure. I like that you placed the cost of failure is much higher because the complexity, like you had outlined, both of you, and the complexity and also the value of that data and the criticality of that data is different. And it's put in places that it didn't used to be. Access to it has been provided in ways that it hasn't been before. Like you started saying everything was network. That was kind of a closed system, but now you have a global sort of internet now that it's networked all over the world. So you can access some of this information no matter where you are, but that comes of course with the risk and that cost of failing to secure that particular model is really, really high. Mark, give me your perspective too, because I mean, that fascinates me, that cost. Because before it was just physical security, like, hey, you're at a terminal, you secure that terminal, you have somebody with a gun outside of a door and doesn't let anyone in the door, and then you're good. Now there's no door, and there's no person with a gun to put them in front of that door. What's that shift been like, and how is that being tackled right now? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I don't want to minimize the notion of the insider threat. I think the insider threat continues to be an issue as it, it was in the 90s and, and before. There's a pendulum that I think is important to understand. These government systems have been built in silos, information or agency silos, and the budgeting practices really support that. And to some extent, you understand if you're responsible for mission, you need your own system to do the job. But the counter to that is so many of these policies and programs overlap that from the point of the citizen, the citizen's data is held multiple times by multiple agencies and multiple silos. And the complexity that you're talking about really comes to roost here because the more redundant systems, on the one hand, you'd say, I have resiliency because I got redundancy. On the other hand, it becomes harder and harder to secure all these systems, the complexity, the paths into those systems. And to, to Matt's point, it's oftentimes no different in the private sector. You may remember the theft several years ago I think it was Target. Well, it wasn't really Target. It was one of the vendors at that company that was on their network. So you have single points of failure all over the place. And the complexity of today's environment in the pandemic world, where now the government employees basically have to work at home. A lot of them were sent home with essentially a BYOD environment. We're working at their desk, to your point, it's no longer a terminal, but it was a computer. It was a desktop computer, but now they can't come to the office. So 
all of this stuff has been, and the threat environments have been evolving very rapidly on the external threat side. And I think it's clearly become much more at the forefront than the internal threat that people used to focus on. Well, let me pose this to you because there's been that need, like you said, that terminal, it's not a terminal anymore, it's a desktop and it's there physically at the location. And now they've had people been pushing that BYOD now. This is a common theme, of course, throughout this year, but I think specifically for the public sector space, and I'll put this to both of you, starting with you, Matt, but I'd love to hear from both of you on this. What projects that really need to be funded and that everyone knew were there in place and had a really high sense of urgency and there was a high cost of failure, what of those has really accelerated where people's minds have now shifted to say, yes, I do believe that dollars really need to be put behind these projects and this whether it's security or whether it's distributed systems, this really needs to get moving right now. What's been the big things that have started to accelerate? So a few different areas. One is definitely just remote access in general, right? How do I extend the boundary of my network, leveraging whether it's software-defined perimeter or virtual workspace environments provided VDI or some other application streaming? One, I would make a point that there are a lot of our customers who had leaned forward into some of these projects and had looked beyond just how do I save money by virtualizing or moving to the cloud and had really thought about continuity of operations, or now they're seeing the benefits. You can see customers who were on that spectrum who were much better prepared to really keep their mission-critical applications going. And I'm not sure there's a lot of agencies out there or even companies in the world really that had the foresight to predict the, the shift at the scale that we've seen this year. So some of it maybe was deliberate, some of it was good timing and good luck, but you can certainly see the ones that were more prepared. In addition to a remote access, uh, certainly cloud adoption and application modernization are things that have made agencies more resilient to all the changes in the business models, able to scale up services, deal with content distribution and application distribution challenges. Cloud makes all those things easier if done right. Maybe not just purely by adopting cloud, but people who have holistically looked at this and really modernized their applications, modernized their operations, have been in a much better place to adopt technologies. The demand cycle from our perspective in industry, I think reflects that pattern because we're certainly seeing an uptick in demand for all those services, which it's not really new demand, but it's certainly grown exponentially this year. Yeah, if I could add to that, I think Matt makes some pretty key points about this change in the operating model that some of the agencies were ready for and some weren't, but it, it really was a cultural shift that was taken out of their hands by the pandemic. Some agencies, take Social Security Administration, for example, was in the process of getting rid of telework, and overnight that flipped, and they had to move what, what we believe is a shift from telework to remote work as the real environment. We did a survey a couple months ago, and, and it's at the saic.com slash COVID survey, where we talked to 300 senior executives. We hired a company to do an independent survey of decision makers in the government, basically C-level senior managers across the government to understand how the pandemic is affecting the nature of work. And, and they found that there has really been a shift from like before, as I mentioned, the Social Security Administration was trying to get rid of telework, suddenly had to adapt telework as the work environment. And before the pandemic, it was less than two days a week on average, people in the various agencies were teleworking. Now it's clearly remote work. And to the extent where the healthcare agencies are actually working more than five days a week, and they're doing that remote. 
that should help restore the trust in government that you have the commitment of employees. But to Matt's point, it's there because the agencies either had thought about it and had that virtual capability in space, or they had to work fast and are working to improve that. In the future, the survey said that on average, it's going to be four days or more that people are going to be working remote. So the notion of telework has really moved to the notion of remote work. The type of comments as you expect, uh, people were saying we're more productive. We don't have to sit in traffic for an hour and a half or a couple hours every day. We get to do the work. And people don't. Uh, uh, people have a time with that DC traffic, don't they? It's, they do, it's, and, it's, and of course, most of the federal employees are outside of DC, but they're still in major cities. They're in San Francisco, Chicago, Atlanta. So the ability to not sit in traffic and instead get your work done is really working out well in conjunction with this. But as Matt said. That's requiring more security to the edge, new ways of building out that infrastructure. And as I said, it's really a cultural shift that came about, I think, literally as a result of the pandemic now across the government instead of the few agencies that were doing it before the pandemic. Yeah. And there's two big themes now from that, what you're talking about with modernization and cloud and Mark, the remote workforce and distributed workforce. Two, of course, huge themes for 2020. I really want to pull on the thread for modernization and cloud, because there's always been, I don't know if I can call it a love-hate relationship between sort of government agencies and cloud. You really want the cloud computing, you want GovCloud. There's been lots of lots of security from ITAR to FedRAMP to all these different things that are really, really critical when you come to a cloud infrastructure, from physical security to digital security. But the potential, of course, and the utilization and the utilities is tremendous. What has the relationship of government agencies been or shifted with cloud as a portion or a strategic part of their portfolio, because you're always going to have that portfolio. You're going to have those legacy systems, but you're going to also have cloud. How has that shift happened in your eyes, Matt, with modernization and cloud adoption as a proportion of the portfolio? And I'd love to hear from you too, Mark, too, but I'll start with Matt. Sticking with the theme of preparedness in our current state of the economy in the world right now, I think you saw a lot of forward-leaning agencies and there was a heavily adopted cloud, and that's been going for many years. This is not really a new thing. And I think some of the same agencies that have really embraced cloud and modern operating models are the same ones that have allowed us to really have a distributed workforce, which has all the obvious advantages that we're seeing now. It's something that I would say actually a majority of my team has been working in a primarily remote model for several years now. So we're pretty well prepared for this, especially the people who are doing heavy work around cloud. Because it seems like there's a correlation between the same agencies that were really forward-leaning and kind of letting go of their servers and their storage arrays and really adopting cloud and those that really started focusing more on outcomes than contractors, workforce, in seats, in buildings. So those are some of the same ones that have been really well-prepared. I think the difference now is that over the last several years, it's really become ubiquitous. Almost everybody has at least some portion of their portfolio in cloud. And with the recent push to adopt new operating models, new infrastructure to respond to the current pandemic and the different needs of the workforce, I can't put a number on it, but I mean, it's certainly a growing portion of the portfolio. And I think everybody is really seriously considering what can cloud do for me? What can consumption-based IT and outcome-based IT do for me versus me making CapEx investments to meet the worst case possible scenario? Maybe a good way to think about this is, uh, first of all, especially the federal level, there's been a, a shift in the strategy. Ten years ago, it was called cloud first. Anytime we do modernization, it's focused on the infrastructure and the platform that we're going to build it in. 
let's do it in the cloud. But that really was a shift to the infrastructure as a service model. Didn't take advantage of many of the other services or the other aspects of the IT as a service model. Now the strategy is called cloud smart. And the concept is really getting into the applications and the services that are available to modernize the business practices or business processes of government. So the cloud smart construct is really embracing more than infrastructure as service. Starting to look at function services and Kubernetes and how can you take advantage of containerization. Consider the way a lot of government works, especially at the federal level, where you have these monthly or these quarterly reports. So why buy the infrastructure? Why buy essentially capability to run at peak load and you pay for it 12 months a year when you really only need it one day a month or one day a quarter or maybe 30 days a quarter? So the savings opportunities are huge, but you got to change the application to take advantage of that. You got to understand the trade-offs and that opens you up to take advantage of different security services as well that are available. As Matt said, cost becomes a big factor here. One of the key elements of cost to keep in mind is that 80 or 85% of most agencies' IT spending goes for operations and maintenance. Exactly. And there's a lot more modernization work to do if you can free up some of that cost. So that's pretty much going to be the game going forward. Reduce the complexity, free up the cost, enable modernization securely, by taking advantage of these cloud services as the agencies start to learn more and more what they can do with the cloud services and what's available to them. Yeah, I like the way you put that, Mark. Simplify, but it's tough too, because when you're starting to talk about things like Kubernetes and containers, there can be a tremendous amount of complexity added when you're looking at certain pieces like that, which you're going to have to adopt, especially when you're looking at application, modernizing applications, you may have to re-architect some things. There might be some complexity there, but simplification, I think maybe, and Mark, what you're alluding to is simplifying the consumption model, simplifying, I don't know, the number of applications you have. Maybe give me a little bit of a sense. I just want to pull on that thread a little bit about simplification for cost savings so that you can then turn that money into cost savings for that modernization engine? I don't think it's as easy as it was a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Because the environment has moved so rapidly to a digital or virtual environment. Now we're looking at how do you orchestrate some of these processes with legacy systems that before yet terminal emulators and you were working inside the network, inside the building. And now you work in remote and you have latency issues and, and a whole bunch of other security walls to go through. So part of this re-engineering that I think we're just at the cusp of is understanding how workflows work. And then you throw in AI and RPA, robotic process automation. So much of what the government folks had done in before were take a look at documents that were submitted and validate or review those documents against a set of business rules. Well, a lot of that, the government just doesn't have the people to do that. The need to do more knowledge work is exactly. uh, forcing government to look at automation. So I think we're at the cusp of some major re-engineering. And I think that brings along with it, maybe not just simplification, but certainly what we believe in the first step, automation and use of robotics for some immediate near-term cost savings to free up money to do the re-engineering and re-architecting to simplify the legacy applications, take advantage of the services and literally simplify the business processes. 
No, I think that's a good blueprint. And to pull out something that you said, Matt, which was a lot of the people who are doing really well, the entities, the organizations that are doing really well, those ones that were already forward-leaning, the ones that already kind of gone through maybe some of the steps that Mark had just mentioned too. I wanted to, to pull on that thread a little bit because it really fascinates me the actual execution of getting the complexity down, of rationalizing your application portfolio, of finding those cost savings, and then using that, squeezing the blood out of that stone and getting the budget that you need for those modernization. Those seems like Herculean efforts to some people. Some, some people might be listening to this kind of like, I've spent quarter after quarter trying to squeeze every penny out of my data center and I'm at the limit. Where do you see the successes in those forward-leaning organizations, whether that be just convincing on making the case or finding those cost savings, Matt, give me your perspective on how do you think those forward-leaning organizations are doing what Mark was just talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple areas that the ones that are really seeing success. To go back to an earlier thread, maybe I'll talk about what hasn't worked. Yeah, we can so, start. Let's start with what's been a yeah. disaster. Let's start there. I think that's a good place to start. I mean, first is to mark to your earlier comment about cloud first versus cloud smart is really understanding why do I want to go to the cloud? What, what am I actually trying to modernize? What is the actual business case for moving an application or portfolio of applications to the cloud? Does it really make sense and understanding what do you really expect to get out of it? So some of the early adopters that looked at cloud is, well, here's just a utility where I can buy infrastructure as a service and I'll just treat it like it's another data center. And that's just going to save money because I'm now out in the cloud. Most of the time that doesn't really work out really well. And you've seen a lot of customers, right? okay, now I'm in the cloud. Now I've got a theoretically unlimited scalability within a data center that I have to pay for the consumption. And they usually don't save money. And they usually they, don't they get really some speed surprise up. bills from AWS. Right. You're really not seeing innovation. They're not seeing the pace of new capabilities coming out the door. And they're certainly not seeing cost savings. So I think if you want to back up to really the place to start is understanding what is your actual mission or business objective for moving to the cloud. You mentioned really understanding your portfolio. I think it is very important to look at the entire portfolio of capabilities, whether we're talking about applications, data. Mark, you mentioned earlier, all this redundant data that lives in silos. So really understanding what are all those silos within an agency where the same data resides and are there savings to be had from a common taxonomy and governance model for your data itself. Looking at your portfolio of applications and saying which ones have duplicative capability and maybe I can just reduce applications out of my portfolio. Maybe there's others that it does make sense just to move to the cloud. Maybe there's others that it makes sense to really truly start breaking it apart and modernizing the application itself so that I can embrace modern application development and delivery methods. And so I can embrace modern platform delivery methodologies and DevOps, which is this holy grail of DevOps and rapid capability insertion safely and securely into the environments. Yeah, that safely it, and securely part, that's always the key. Let's move fast and break things. I, I talked to one CIO of a, a healthcare provider and I was like, you can't really have agile brain surgery, can you? you can't like fail fast <laughs> and break things when it comes to brain surgery. I imagine, especially in a government standpoint where you have federal law that's controlling what you do, it, it, I imagine it's really hard to move fast and break things. I think culture is the, the key issue. As a former federal CIO and, and you talk to a CIO in a federal agency, at the department level, you're kind of hamstrung between a, a policy or governance role in supporting the department-wide infrastructure. At the bureau level, you're much closer to mission application. No CIO really seems to have figured out the best way to deal with applications modernization, because that's usually the program office that owns that, the, the business or the mission office of the agency. 
And so relationship building for the CIO becomes very important. Having a, an idea, especially in the civilian agencies, understanding the industry that you're regulating or working in. You know, so for example, in the agencies that deal with banking or with agriculture or pharma, the technology moves very rapidly to the extent that the regulations allow it. The regulations require some reporting and interfacing with the industry. Sometimes it's a constraint on that industry and sometimes they're left behind. I think the CIOs have to understand what's happening with the technology and usually the way information is flowing within the industries that their agency interacts with. Now, transportation, CBP is a, a perfect example where, especially in the larger countries, there have been mandates on what the airlines have to report or the cargo ships, cargo carriers have to report. And that feeds into threat targeting and, and risk reduction activities by those agencies. If you want to go in and modernize those applications, you have to be working pretty closely with the people working on those missions. On the governance side, one of the issues that I, I found in government that's really missing is I think we're all familiar with the concept of a, a systems life cycle or systems life cycle management methodology. Well, guess what's usually missing? How do I end of life a system? How do I initiate a modernization? So most modernization happens with new programs. And the new programs are created because there's some gap in a policy or horror story occurred. But there's no way to go in and fix the legacy programs or the legacy silos. And so there's this real bad conundrum in government that CIOs have to grapple with on how they take new technologies or new business process opportunities into an existing program and simplify it. And I think it's one of the reasons operations and maintenance spending consumes so much of the available IT funding for the government. Yeah. You got to make good on the promises that you've made to the citizens of the Republic. And to do that, you got to spend money making sure everything stands up. You need the five nines. You need those you five nines. <laughs> and the CIOs have to understand the businesses and they have to be the ones making increasingly we're seeing in the digital era to bring these digital technologies and new capabilities into the mission application in a way that does a better job in responding to the citizen needs. Let's do uh, sort of a part that we usually do in the show, which is kind of taking it to the board. And that's sort of making that business case, whether it's a panel, whether it's a committee that you have to sit in front of and ask for additional funds and justify those additional funds. What could the listeners of the show take to that next executive staff meeting or the next board level conversation or committee level conversation that has to do with whether it's budget or modernization? Matt, I think I'll start with you. What do you think the next step is for someone to kind of walk into that next meeting and say, look, at yes, we have these headwinds. Yes, we've got lots of legacy. Yes, we've been a lot on just maintaining what's currently there to deliver on the services that we're required to by law. But let's dispel maybe with a couple myths. Maybe there are some myths that are out there that, you know, hey, look, we actually can do these things. We can make these changes. Other forward-leaning people have done it. Let's start the conversation for how's this person who's just listened to this show and listened to you going to go into that next conversation? Hey, look, I heard from Matt and Mark, and they had a really great perspective on this. This is how I think we should start looking at when we're having these conversations about, about taking that next step. What do you think that next step is, Matt? Let me maybe pull on a, a different angle that we haven't really talked about here. When Just solve the problem for every CIO in the world right now. Making the case. <laughs> yeah. So I think one important consideration that, that kind of circles around a lot of these topics that we've been talking about is really your government workforce and your contractor workforce. There's a big change in the computer science grads that are coming out of school today. What are the technologies they're comfortable with? What are the application development paradigms that they're comfortable with? 
what are the work environments that they want to come out and start their careers into? And so I think a lot of the things we've talked about, like cloud adoption, adoption of modern application architectures, cloud native services, as well as this distributed workforce that everybody's having to deal with right now, there's a much longer game here than just the current pandemic. We really have to look at how do we start greening the workforce? How do we bring in new talent into the government sector? And how do we attract top talent coming into industry? That's all the more reason to start moving away from, well, we've got this mainframe system over here and it's been running for 30 years and it works and nobody's really sure how it works. So let's just leave that thing alone. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Because that strategy will work for so many decades, but eventually this does become a problem, right? Because you don't have a workforce that knows how to work on it. Maybe you don't actually understand how it does. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And to Matt and your point earlier, so the complexity that you were talking about, I mean, that's all the stuff you bolted on that legacy application because you really didn't want to touch it. So you just bolted some new stuff on and that's what's caused all this complexity. Right. And and you're not going to do this fail fast thing that we talked about, right? Because there's no (laughs) failing small and fast with all these things bolted around the legacy monolith. This one area that I would definitely say would be something to take to the board for long-term strategic consideration of why you should invest in modernization. Another aspect is is security. Early on, I think cloud was looked at as a threat to security. And I think the more successful agencies are starting to realize that if used correctly, you can actually use cloud to improve your security posture and to reduce your lifecycle cost for security. Oh, that's fascinating. That is, that is really fascinating because it is. It's That goes against a lot of sort of conventional wisdom that people are saying. And there are, there's always just security review boards that just pound on the cloud. So maybe it's just that's more of a Spanish Inquisition kind of a thing. Like that is the dark and scary thing that is coming into my world. And we're going to build a panel of people to say that, no, we're not going to do that. I love that perspective. So how is the security of the cloud uh, or using cloud correctly to improve your security footprint or security posture? I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's all about really understanding the shared security model of cloud and really knowing how to use it. We talked about this end of the spectrum that says that's the dark and scary place and data shall never leave my data center. This is one end of the spectrum. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum that says, I'm going to use this cloud service. It's been through FedRAMP, so I'm done with security. Neither one is a good place to be. I think these successful organizations are the ones that really understand how to use it. And also, Mark, you've hit several times on that a lot of this is cultural challenge as much as technological to really embrace IT modernization, digital transformation, the government CIOs are going to have to start really embracing organizational change, embracing cultural change, and start to question some of the historical silos within the workforce. I think making the business cases is all about partnerships, as as you're saying, Matt. We're uh, in some pretty interesting times in government across the U.S. right now, certainly with the new administration coming in the pandemic and all the aspects of the response. I firmly believe that federal government deals with disasters in three phases. Response phase is kind of like triage that we've been through. You do what you have to to get the job done. And then there's a recovery phase where you're now going into more normal management of the program, but you realize you got to pick up the pieces. And then there'll ultimately be some restructuring because we always refight the past wars to make sure they don't happen again and seem to miss out on the future. But we restructure to make sure the past wars don't happen again. This year, there is a key guidance in federal budgeting that I think gives CIOs three areas for partnering with the business side to make the business case for change. One of those is the agency priority goals concept. So under the strategies and the funding processes of the federal government, program has to have performance metrics. 
outcomes or outputs, it's got to have performance metrics. And if there's a gap in achieving those performance metrics, generally you can get additional funding. You have to put forward your plan for improving your performance. And that really comes down to you throw more people at it, which is really hard to do, or you re-engineer and somehow improve your productivity. So that's the normal process. And historically, over the last few years, a lot of business cases have focused on just a cash flow type of ROI, which works if you're at the IRS or the Treasury Department and you can have a cash flow ROI. But I think focusing on the mission outcome, fewer unemployed people or less homeless is going to be more important with this new administration. The second area is in what's called the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act essentially using better data analytics and understanding what data you should be collecting, what you need to do to apply modern data analytics to do a better job at running your program. So I think there's an obvious path for simplifying and digitizing as opposed to sending your form. If your form checks the boxes, you get your benefit, which we're seeing now with a number of the CARES Act programs People gamed that and the wrong parties got money and people that should have gotten the money are being left behind. So I think we're going to see more opportunity for CIOs to work with the business, put forward business cases in that area. And the third path is something called 21st century idea. This was a notion that you would improve the customer experience, but you could improve the customer experience in government by understanding the end-to-end process a citizen or business goes through to interact with government. And to your point on simplification, so much of improving that customer experience is simplifying and really focusing on a simple, very responsive, high-quality approach to that business process. So I think there are three good business processes. I hope the next administration will embrace all of that. Congress has been pushing this. So stars are aligning for modernization now like they haven't been for probably since I was in the government 15 years ago. Well, that's great news. Mark, Matt, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you both joining the CIO Exchange podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CIO Exchange podcast. For more conversations with technology leaders from around the world, consider subscribing to this podcast. And to get video perspectives and deep research, visit vmware.com slash CIO.